About a year ago, we came across this story from a tech company called Kickstarter. They automated part of people's jobs to make their lives easier. Yet surprisingly, instead of making them happier, their work turned out to be more stressful and less enjoyable. Suddenly, you know, somebody says, they're like, oh yeah, I guess the robot is getting to approve all the good projects. And then people just kind of sit there, you know, drinking their coffee and they're like, that's funny. People at Kickstarter were as surprised as we were. Yeah, wasn't automation supposed to make all our lives easier? Turns out, the common wisdom that's held for ages, robots coming to do all the hard work, the heavy lifting, while we would get to do all the creative, fun and interesting work, turns out that common wisdom is no longer true. Robots have all the fun, and what we're left with is the hard stuff, the stressful stuff. So actually, cognitive automation makes things harder. Dun dun dun! The robots are coming to make our jobs harder. We started wondering, just how many other things do we take for granted that have actually changed and we haven't even realized? The answer is quite a few. And so we set out to find them. Enter The Unlearn Project, our new podcast about changing common sense. It is about those topics, ideas, concepts where the world has changed without us even noticing. Like automation, making our jobs harder, not easier. It's not just about learning something. It's about something we all thought we knew, but that is now no longer true. It's about letting go of knowledge and ideas that no longer fit how the world works. It's about unlearning. And we'll tackle many topics over the next episodes, like why it's no longer true that large companies do not innovate and that their businesses will soon be disrupted by small firms. Size matters, and small is the new big. Why the robots are coming to make our jobs harder. Uh, what music is for. Yeah, even that's changed. Why data is not the new oil, and why there's no such thing as the internet. And heaps more. There will be research, and there will be people. From CEOs, entrepreneurs and innovators to Nobel laureates, rappers and diplomats, professors and rocket scientists. I'm Sandra Peter. I'm Kai Rima. Welcome to the Unlearn Project. Okay. So every decision we make is based on an understanding of how the world works, how we do business, the way we work, the way we live our lives, the way we record this podcast. And if the world changes, but our understanding doesn't, well, that's a bit of a problem, right? Actually quite a big problem because then our decisions have unexpected outcomes, business strategies fail, and we miss out on stuff. Everyone knows we need to learn new things but we often forget that we also need to let go of some of the things we thought we already knew. We need to unlearn. And that's much harder. It's much, much harder because these are all things we think we know. They're common sense. And so when the world changes, we also have to change our common sense. And as it turns out, we live in times when lots of things are changing and they usually have to do with technology. We hear all the time how artificial intelligence, algorithms, big data are changing the world in a big way. Exactly. Technology is everywhere around us. It's in our pockets, on our wrists, in our cars, in our houses, with us when we socialize, when we work, when we vote, even when we sleep. Computing is now everywhere. It absolutely is. But it didn't used to be. Maybe then that's the first thing we should unlearn. Computers. What are they and what are they for? Yeah, because computers used to be on our desks, right? 
But now they're everywhere and many of them don't even look like computers anymore. Exactly, my phone, my watch, my car, my toothbrush, and soon my glasses. And they're no longer something we use. Well, I do use my toothbrush. Yeah, yeah, but they're no longer just a tool we use to accomplish a task, like writing an email or editing a video. Computing is increasingly just there, like GPS telling us where to go, or Twitter deciding what I should read, or Spotify telling me what I should listen to. Yep. True, even my toothbrush is telling me when and how to brush my teeth. We need to unlearn computers as tools. It's now algorithms that are everywhere and organize our lives. What loans we get, what jobs we can be considered for, and sometimes even how to do our jobs. Yeah, it's really no longer what we have computers do for us, it's what they decide for us. And we're right in the middle of this. Many of the topics we will tackle in the Unlearn project are a result of this shift. Yeah, such as when automation makes our work harder. But this is an intro episode, so shall we have a closer look at what unlearning actually looks like? And maybe we should use computers for this. And computers are a good example because we've unlearned computers before. And while the Unlearned project is not a history project, in this instance it is worthwhile going back in time a bit, because we have unlearned computers before, what they are and what they are for. Yeah, remember they used to be something only businesses had and they had one and they were the size of a room before PCs or Macs appeared in our homes. So, unlearned computer? Then maybe we should start at the beginning, because you know they used to be people. Like in that movie, Hidden Figures, you know about Katherine Johnson and the women at NASA? Uh, the early days at NASA. Yeah, there's this scene. Shame this is a podcast. Shame this is a podcast because there's this scene where Kevin Costner, who plays the head of the space task group or some such, asks, what's the status on that computer? What's the status on that computer? And he's told, she's right behind you. She's right behind you. And as he turns, Ta-da! we see a woman, Katherine Johnson, uh, played by Taraji P. Henson, who was part of a small group of African-American women mathematicians, computers, who helped put people in space by calculating launch windows and where they were going to land. So Katherine Johnson, the computer, she handles analytic geometry. And also, she speaks. And as the real-life Katherine Johnson was fond of saying, the 50s and 60s was a time when computers wore skirts. So back in the 50s, computers used to be people who did mathematical calculations. Well, if we want to do this from the beginning, this goes a lot further back. In fact, all the way back to the hunt for Halley's Comet. Back in 1705, astronomer Edmund Halley figured out that the comet would return and that the laws of gravity could actually predict precisely when. Yeah, but the problem was that those calculations would be way too much and would be way too complex for any single astronomer. But in 1757, a French mathematician, a young astronomer and a mathematically gifted clockmaker's wife, this sounds like the beginning of a joke, worked together and figured out that it would actually come back the following year. Human computers. To be fair, they were slightly off and the comet came two days early, but that counted as very close back in 1757. Human computers. Enter the women. By the 19th century, some male scientists realized that hiring women could reduce the cost of calculations. So they powered everything from astronomy to war and the race into space. So computers back then were people, pretty much all women. And we spoke to one of them. I'm so happy that you chose me. How did you find me? 
I go by Sue Finley. My doctor calls me Susan, things like that, but I go by Sue Finley. My business card says I'm a subsystem engineer. And Sue's been at NASA for 64 years. I went to work there before it became NASA. It became NASA uh, about a year and a half later. NASA was not uh, founded yet when I first went to work at JPL. That is the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in La Cañada, Flintridge, California. And I was hired as a computer. And it was actually my second job as a computer. Sue was first hired in 1958 as a computer, an employee who calculated mathematical equations, such as rocket or spacecraft trajectories, by hand. Computers being the term originally used for Katherine Johnson and her colleagues, uh, much like typewriter was used in the 19th century for professional typists. And JPL had been using mostly female mathematicians as computers since the 1930s. And just like Katherine Johnson, Sue did all those calculations mainly by hand, using slide rules, graph paper, and desktop typewriter-sized machines. And uh, there were two of us that ran Frieden calculators for uh, 40 thermodynamics engineers for a rocket company. Sue is now 84, and she's still at NASA. How cool is that? Well, not right now, because of lockdown. She's working from home now. So I've been there the whole time. (laughs) That makes her the longest working, longest serving woman at NASA. They don't say it officially, but nobody has ever argued with me. And there wasn't just one computer at NASA, right? No, the computer room was a really busy place in the 50s. It was fun. I liked it. There were, I think, maybe 20 of us in the room, all working on Freedoms and all working for engineers who would write up the equations that they wanted the answers to. But by 1960, something was starting to change. Hardware computers arrived on the scene. We had a small computer just for us uh, called the 1620, and it took cards, punch cards that we punched ourselves and printed out on a typewriter. And But it um, was a computer that we could code Fortran. We coded Fortran. By the late 1960s, computers were no longer people, but machines. And then we had big computers, big Univac computers, and we didn't punch the cards anymore. So the Universal Automatic Computer 1, or Univac 1, was a new commercial data processing computer. And that replaced the old punch card machines. And the role of the people who used to do the calculations also changed. It was now, again, mostly for women to operate those machines. That was enough to say, okay, you're an engineer now. So I was then an engineer. I was then doing programming, and um, I was then classified as an engineer officially. It was the dawn of the computer age. Viva la revolution! And I didn't realize at the time, of course, how significant it was and how many other computers there were probably around the world, at least in the United States. They were very significant, I found out later. 
And she probably didn't see it because people had to first unlearn what a computer was. Computers, no longer people, but machines. Big, big machines. And we would be remiss here if we didn't mention the CSIR Mark I. A very, very big, big machine. machine. Especially since we have a historian across the hallway. Hello, my name is Sebastian Bell. Because Australia was actually at the forefront of computing once. And the CSIR Mark I was built right here on the grounds of the University of Sydney. So CSIR Mark I uh, was Australia's first computer. And depending on how you count, it was the fourth computer in the world. It was first switched on in November 1949. Cyric is also the only computer from the first generation that is still surviving to this day. That's Sebastian, our colleague from across the hallway. Hello, my name is Sebastian Bell, and I'm the director of the Business and Labor History Group at the University of Sydney Business School. And he's also on the editorial board for the Piercy Foundation. Trevor Piercy built the first computer in Australia. Uh, together with Maston Beard, he designed CSIR Mark I, later renamed to CIREC. And this thing was big. If you go to Science Work in Melbourne, you will see that CIREC takes about 40 square meter of office space. And if you could lift it, you would realize it weighs about two tons. CIREC was a momentous achievement. It was 500 times faster than the average mechanical calculator at the time. Which is quite slow by today's standards. I heard Genevieve Bell in a talk put it in today's terms, and she pointed out that it would basically take 4 million CIRACs to replace her mobile phone, which would require most of the electricity in New South Wales and most of the landmass too. But nonetheless. It was built as a scientific instrument. So it was used, for example, to find the center of our galaxy, to do the calculations for the first skyscraper in Melbourne. And by the way, it was the first computer in the world that played music. So to set another historical record straight, computer music started here at Sydney Uni, not a half a decade later at Bell Labs, as everyone believes. So uh, one of the programmers uh, on uh, CIREC, uh, Jeff Hill, um, uh, also was a very talented musician. And uh, he programmed the speakers of, of the computer, which was used at the time to hear if a program is in a loop or is not running properly. But he programmed the speakers to actually play notes and music. Yeah, and there's a terrific story about Jeff Hill inviting young women over to, you know, hear the computer play music. Of course, this young software engineer, having programmed the computer to play music for the first time, would invite young ladies over to the lab to hear it. So, also the first use of a computer as a pickup device. We have an Australian uh, historian, Paul Dornbush, who has done extensive work on Cyrex music. He even managed to recreate the original music that Cyrex was playing in 1950. <laughs> Hang on, Jeff Hill was picking up girls with that? No, probably with this. <laughs> but to be clear, the original music was never recorded because music was not an authorized activity, but more like a parlor trick, never publicly acknowledged. Today, we don't think twice about playing music on computers. We have them in our pockets and in our homes and offices. Music is just there whenever and wherever we want it. But playing music on a computer back then was unimaginable. But we are getting ahead of ourselves with computers playing music. The point here is that computers then were still seen as just really fancy calculators. They performed computations, and space measurements, and building specifications. 
And while some started experimenting with these machines, for most people, it was really hard to see how computers could ever be more than just glorified calculators. Computers would be able to do much more, but people first had to let go of the idea that they were calculators before computers could go on to change the way we did business. So back to our story. <laughs> Where were we? In the 1960s, Sue was seeing computers start to pop up everywhere around the world. But just like her, no one quite knew how significant they would be, or even really what to do with them. First, the world had to unlearn computers as merely calculators to make room for them to become true business machines. Cue in educational marketing videos. The new equipment does all 1500 in 43 minutes. And what a job it does. <laughs> Not only fast and accurate billing with all specifications, but an immediate breakdown of price, cost, discount, and salesman's commission on each item. The whole profit and loss picture at a glance. Oh, but the big payoff comes later. Because remember the machine has stored all the facts you fed into it. Again, shame this is a podcast. What you heard is from a 1960s film promoting the use of computers in business. In low definition black and white, that is, white men in black suits with female assistants and a computer the size of a Tokyo apartment, the computer went from doing mere calculations to transaction processing, data storage, and creating business reports. There were many examples of improved customer service through use of the computer. As Macklin put it, uh, you're bound to have a competitive advantage if your computer can help a customer solve a problem or save money. This is your chicken salad sandwich, oh, thank you. Macklin and coffee. Thanks very much. More white men in black suits with female assistants. Luckily, we've unlearned that one. Yeah, but the important bit here is the term, the computer. The computer was still singular. Businesses had one computer which would fill an entire room. And the people doing something with the computer were special operators. They would feed it with requests and they would print out reports that would then be handed to the managers. And the more managers became convinced of the usefulness of the computer, the more businesses would buy a computer. So, that's our first big unlearn, right? Right. As we go from human computers to mechanical ones, we had to let go of the idea that computers were just big calculators. Yeah, so the computer would not just replace those 20 human computers doing calculations in the computer room, as Sue told us. They would now do all these other things for businesses. Yeah, they wouldn't just add up sales figures, but keep records of all their transactions and create all these detailed reports for managers to use. But it's still just a business computer run by special operators. So over time, companies got used to having a business computer. But an even bigger shift was just around the corner. The computer would finally escape the computer room and make its way onto ordinary people's desks. Today, one year after Lisa, we are introducing the third industry milestone product, Macintosh. On January 24, 1984, Steve Jobs introduced the Apple Macintosh personal computer at the company's annual shareholder meeting. And shame this is a podcast, as the rest of the world was introduced to the Apple Macintosh personal computer the same year with an iconic ad that ran during the Super Bowl. Glorious anniversary of the information purification. We see people marching through a tube. Grey zombie people marching. They all look the same. On the screen, a man is talking, Big Brother. 
representing the control of the technology. And running down the corridor is a young woman who bursts into the room. The only piece of color with red shorts. She swings the hammer and there's a giant explosion. The screen comes tumbling down, unleashing dust over the masses sitting. January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. Incidentally, this was also the moment the world unlearned the Super Bowl as just a sports event. It became this must-see media event with secret cinematic ads specifically made for the Super Bowl, and it became this giant platform for like really interesting advertising. Of course, Apple wasn't the only company doing PCs. IBM had started shipping out PCs in 1981, and sales exceeded IBM's expectations by as much as 800%. So this really took off. They shipped 40,000 PCs a month at some point. And IBM estimated that 50 to 70% of all PCs sold in retail stores went to the home and not to the office. But to be fair, IBM's PC was still more or less a clunky-to-use business machine. But Apple saw the real promise of the personal computer. Reimagine the computer to be used by everyone. And their 1984 ad played on this, on George Orwell's novel 1984. He said computers would be the tools of big governments and corporations, and they'd be like Big Brother and control us. But Steve Jobs believed that the computer should empower the individual. A computer that everyone could use. And so the computer really became a personal computer. Microsoft released Windows for PCs, and from there PCs took the world by storm. And eventually pretty much everyone had a computer. This was a really big shift. For this to happen, the world had to unlearn computers once again. We all had to unlearn computers as special business machines run by special operators. They were something that now anyone could use. Really, in the office and at home. Managers and teenagers alike. And not just to keep track of things, but to create things, to communicate and to have fun. Remember Solitaire and Minesweeper? The computer was now a tool for everyone, not just equipment for business. And with computers now on everybody's desk, we discovered new ways of working, of communicating, and of expressing ourselves. This was a huge shift, and it's now difficult to understand just how hard it was for people to see this. Remember Sue? Not even people like Gordon Moore. He of Moore's Law fame. And also the chairman and CEO of Intel, the guys who made the chips, the microprocessors for all these PCs. Even he couldn't see it. He used to joke that, um, if you asked me in 1980, I would have missed a PC. I didn't see much future for it. I thought automobiles would be a bigger market for microprocessors. But the IBM PC kind of hit it off with the public. And Gordon Moore admitted that he didn't even buy a home PC until sometime in the late 80s. So one big unlearn was for serious business managers to unlearn that computers were machinery run by special operators. And that now it was okay for them to have one on their desk. And of course, a few years later, it was really important to always have the latest model on your desk. So computers became popular. And then they took over people's homes. They became networked. Portable, you had laptops and notebooks. Well, and... not not quite, right? My first laptop was a five-kilogram brick I couldn't swing over my shoulder without losing my balance. Yeah, but eventually they did become portable. And they also kept getting smaller. And not just smaller, 
but also faster. Yeah, yeah, Moore's Law. But that's for another episode, right? And then came the year 2007, the year that would change tech forever. Every once in a while, a revolutionary product comes along that changes everything. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today Apple is going to reinvent the phone. That day was January 9, 2007. And that was Steve Jobs. And with the first iPhone, he did reinvent the phone and made it a computer. So in the 1980s, the computer had left the computer room. And now the computer started going everywhere. Mobile devices, home devices, personal devices, cloud. Yes, your watch, your car, your camera, your doorbell, your famous toothbrush, your TV, your Alexa, your HomePod. Not the fridge, though, because that smart fridge never really arrived. So the computer goes almost everywhere and computing starts becoming invisible. We started caring less and less that our computers, our tools were getting an upgrade. New Office, new Mac OS, new Windows. Yeah, remember when we used to know exactly when they were coming out, time and date, and we used to be first in line. But now we don't even notice. We don't know. We don't even care when there's something new. Microsoft is also launching its new Windows 11 this week. Remember how that used to be a big deal? That was Kara Swisher on Pivot. And as we're recording this episode, the launch of the new Windows operating system is going largely unnoticed. Is it actually out? It's Windows 12, isn't it? I have no idea. No idea. And Shira Ovid, the New York Times tech reporter, also observed that when Windows 8 came out in 2012, her professional life that year was completely dominated by it. And this year, much like everybody else, she all but missed it. And she points out just how important this is. Windows being no big deal, that's huge. Because as she remarks, technology went from a succession of big bang moments to something so meshed into our lives that we often don't notice it. Technology has become no big deal. And that's a very big deal. Not strictly the shiny new object that comes out of a box every once in a while. Technology is all around us all the time. And it's perfectly normal, she notes. And that's kind of where we started. Computers no longer just a tool we use to accomplish a task, like writing an email or editing a video. Computing, just there, perfectly normal. Like GPS deciding the best route to drive and Facebook deciding what's important to pay attention to or Spotify what music to listen to. Yeah, and my toothbrush. And telling you when and how to brush your teeth. So now we need to unlearn computers again. Unlearn computers as our personal tools. It's now algorithms that are everywhere and that organize our lives. Yeah, but it's more than that, right? It's no longer just what we can do with them, but what they decide for us. And that reminds me, when I spoke to Rachel Botsman a couple of years ago, she observed her then three-year-old daughter, Grace, interacting with Alexa. And Alexa is Amazon's smart speaker. I did a very quick experiment with my daughter, and she's three and a half. And I said to her, meet Alexa, you can do anything you want with her. And her first question was, is she like Siri? And what was interesting was, you know, I think it's because she's half British that she just asked so many questions about the weather. Like we knew it was not going to rain that day. And then the songs, like they're testing it. But then what frightened me was by day two, she realized she could order things. She thought it was magic that she could use her voice. And then the next day, a massive box of blueberries arrived. And then the next day was what worried me because 
she loves picking her clothes. And she stood in front of Alexa and said, what should I wear today? So what Rachel was seeing was a shift with Grace trusting Alexa with her big decisions, pink or sparkly dress. This for me marks a transition point that we're going through at lightning speed is that my trust in technology won't be that it does something, but that it decides something for us. What Rachel was observing is that increasingly it's not us using the machine to do something, like play the music from Frozen over and over again, but the machine deciding what we should do and when we should do it. She believes that Alexa and uh, Siri and Google Home will make more and more decisions for us. Everything from whether we should have mac and cheese or a healthy dinner to what the perfect gift is for a birthday, uh, or even when and whom we should date. And as computers get more and more data on us, they also get to make more decisions about us, you know, from influencing and nudging us in certain directions, like what to buy or whom to date, to the bigger things like deciding what loan we qualify for, uh, where we get to work, and they even get to tell us how to do our jobs. And that's a long way from Sue's job as a computer at NASA doing calculations. As computers were replaced by machines, we first had to unlearn computers as calculators and accept that they were instead something for business. And it became common sense that they're equipment for running business operations, not just number crunching machines for engineers. And then they left the computer room and made their way onto people's desks and into their home. And when that happened, we had to unlearn that the computer is something that only belongs to a business. And it became common sense that computers are these individual tools for communicating, for creating things. And finally, as computers left our offices and our homes and went everywhere, we now need to unlearn that they are just tools. Data-powered algorithms now know an increasing amount about us. So common sense needs to become that we are no longer just using them, but they increasingly govern our lives. And in the process, they change the way the world works in quite significant ways. And that's what the Unlearned Project is about. With computing now everywhere, many other things have also changed. We set out to look for all the things we take for granted. Automation will make our work easier. Music is something to listen to. Large companies are sluggish and can't innovate. Data is the new oil. All the things we thought we knew for sure, but which have changed and where common sense hasn't quite caught up with how the new world works. It's about letting go of all those ideas. And many more. Those ideas that no longer fit how the world works. Just like the computers are there for us to use, not to use us. So here's how we're going to do it. First, in each episode, we will find a topic, an idea, where we need to update our thinking or change our common sense. Yeah, like the internet, data, automation, Music. Yeah, music. Do music. That's Megan, our sound editor. And these are all things that are happening now as the world is changing around us. Next, much like with computing, we will figure out how the world has changed and what's important, what matters about it. And we'll figure out how common wisdom has to change. And finally, we will bring in people to help us trace what's changed. Much like we did with Sue and Sebastian. And we'll try to keep it simple. We will tell our guests to keep it free of jargon and acronyms. But of course, if we do it, we'll just call them technical terms. Like sociomateriality. Oi, keep it clean, no jargon. <laughs> just cut that bit. More like cognitive automation. All of this is much easier said than done. I mean, unlearning things, not the jargon. 
Unlearning is hard, and if you don't believe us, take it from a Nobel Prize winner who's been trying to change common sense in his field for a long while now. I've been at this for 40 years. Richard Thaler, I'm a professor at the Booth School of Business, University of Chicago. And the recipient of the 2017 Nobel Memorial Prize in Economics. Although perhaps he's most famous for his appearance in the Hollywood movie The Big Short with Selena Gomez where he explains synthetic CDOs. Okay, I think you're leaving out Brad Pitt and Ryan Gosling. <laughs> yeah, okay. But for the past four decades, Richard has been trying to change people's minds about the core premise of economics, which is that individuals make choices by optimizing. Individuals are rational and respond to incentives. Behold, homo economicus. And this model has dominated economics and has an incredible influence still. And for over four decades, Richard's work has proven that people depart from these like fictional creatures in economic models. They suffer from self-control problems and have all kinds of emotions that affect their behavior. So unlearn homo economicus. It's amusing that people are missing from economic theory and even the word doesn't appear. They talk about agents. And agents can be consumers, they could be producers. People are factors of production. Does that sound like humans? Bringing humans into the picture, you'd think that would be easy. But unlearning is hard, especially for economists who've built their careers on homo economicus. So Richard's advice? The strategy was corrupt the youth. And Danny Kahneman and I, with another colleague of ours, Colin Kammerer, started a tradition in 1994 of having a summer camp, two weeks, for the best graduate students from around the world. And most of the great behavioral economists working today are graduates of that summer camp. Okay, so we don't have two Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, Danny Kahneman got one too. But we still want to help people unlearn. So no unlearn camps, but instead the Unlearn Project. So join us for The Unlearned Project, our new podcast about changing common sense. I'm Sandra Peter. And I'm Kairima. And before we go, next time on The Unlearned Project, the story that is really the story of how we started The Unlearned Project in the first place. Actually, let's do that after the credits, like in a Marvel movie. Our sound editor was Megan. Now say it with a bit more feeling than Nicolas Cage, please, Wedge. And this episode and additional nerdy stuff was written by Sandra Peter and Kai Rima. We had help with bits and pieces from the entire SBI team. Jacqueline Hall, Stephen Summers, Sarah Curry, Nicolette Axiak and Kishi Pan. And Pat Norman from the library. He also got his PhD. Congrats. The Cyrek music was reconstructed by Professor Paul Dornbusch, who also set the historical record straight. And if you're wondering about the music you're hearing right now, it's one of the Bach-Goldberg variations, a public domain recording made possible via a Kickstarter project and used by us because it's beautiful and, more importantly, free. If you want to know a little more about the topics and research in our podcasts or for a full nerd out, our show notes are available at sbi.sydney.edu.au slash unlearn. The Unlearn Project is a production of Sydney Business Insights, an initiative of the University of Sydney Business School. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and WeChat. You can subscribe, like or leave us a positive rating wherever you get your podcasts. On the next episode of The Unlearned Project, 
The effects of automation and how work at tech companies can become tedious and unpleasant as employees are left wrestling with only difficult decisions all day long, which can come as a real surprise, like all of a sudden... Suddenly, you know, somebody says, and like, oh yeah, I guess the robot is getting to approve all the good projects. And then people just kind of sit there, you know, drinking their coffee and they're like, that's funny. Rideshare drivers who have a hard time relating to their algorithmic managers. Airline pilots who now require much more training and experience, not less, to fly highly automated planes. Lawyers who no longer do as much of the kind of document-based work that used to be a key training ground for them. We're looking at why automation and artificial intelligence will often make work more difficult, more tedious, stressful, and overall less enjoyable. AI is coming to make your job much, much harder. Next time on The Unlearn Project. <laughs>